Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. When was the last time you got a good night's sleep? If it was just last night, you're one of the lucky ones. Lots of people have trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep, and there are more than 100 possible reasons why. Here to help us sort them out is Dr. Christopher Hughes. He's the medical director of Southern Maine Healthcare's Center for Sleep Disorders. I have to start by asking you, Dr. Hughes, do you ever have trouble sleeping? I think we all have trouble sleeping from one time to another. Uh, the question is whether it's an occasional event that we all have or whether it's a persistent problem that may need to be evaluated by a doctor. So we all suffer then from insomnia every now and again. Sleep is important to us. Can you run through the stages of sleep and what happens during each one of them? Sure. Uh, In general, there are three stages of sleep that we talk about in sleep medicine. There's the light sleep that we all achieve quickly after falling asleep. And then there are the uh, two restorative phases of sleep, the deep sleep and the dream sleep. And those are distinctly different. And throughout the night, uh, we all transition from one stage to another in a cycle. And any kind of condition that disrupts that cycle will make us feel uh, poor in the morning, will feel uh, less refreshed than we should. It's generally accepted that as we are uh, growing throughout life, as, as a child, we usually sleep very effectively, and even as a teenager, we can. But as we get older, the process of sleep is like any other process in the body, and it tends to decline with aging. So having trouble sleeping is much more common as you get older than when you were younger. Well, that's not good news. <laughs> um, is one stage any more important than another, or do they all play in an equally important role? Well, there's ongoing research about that, but we do know that deep sleep and dream sleep are specifically important for us to feel correct in the morning. Hmm. And sleep, um, certain types of sleep research are no longer allowed in the United States, like sleep deprivation research, but from other types of research, we know if you selectively deprive people of deep sleep, they can feel uh, very sore and stiff in the morning. They can have a poor uh, concentration and focus as they try to deal with their day. Hmm. And I've heard that while we sleep, our brains are kind of taking out the garbage, sweeping out the waste and litter that accumulated during the day. Is that right? Well, I guess that would be one way to put it. Uh, (laughs) More recent research has suggested that part of what happens during uh, deep sleep and dream sleep is that the brain deals with the emotions of the day and the memories and helps to consolidate them. And one theory about insomnia is that if those emotions and memories of that particular day are too extreme, then in a sense, the brain has difficulty dealing with it and forces us to be awakened. And so that's why there seems to be such a strong correlation between highly emotional situations and the development of insomnia. I know that that's happened to me under very stressful times. I can't sleep. Knock on wood. Usually it's okay. Um, so does it, it doesn't really hurt us in the long run if every once in a while we don't get a good night's sleep? 
Well, we can't control life, and life is full of ups and downs that can impact us in many ways. But if there is a persistent problem, if uh, night after night people are having trouble or people feel that they're getting enough sleep, but they just don't feel refreshed during the day, it would be a mistake to assume that that's just because they're getting older, that everybody has this problem. And if they are having a persistent problem, they should discuss it with their physician. What about the link to dementia? I think I've read some research that talks about a potential link to developing dementia. Well, that's interesting because uh, just recently, uh, research has shown that persistent lack of good sleep can often present, particularly in older people, as symptoms that would be thought to possibly be dementia. And uh, as a neurologist, I have evaluated many patients in their 50s and 60s and 70s who were sent to me with the thought that they might have dementia. But in reality, after evaluating them, I suspected that uh, persistent lack of good sleep may be contributing to why their brain was having such a hard time with normal function. And if they did have a, an identified correctable sleep disorder, they often found that their memory function got substantially better once that uh, happened. I think sometimes we don't realize how critical sleep is. Absolutely. It's uh, not only uh, important for health and safety, uh, there have been many studies that show that sleep-deprived patients uh, are much more likely to get into car accidents uh, than people who are awake. But there are physiologic problems that develop long-term, particularly with uh, common conditions like obstructive sleep apnea, which uh, can disrupt sleep. Right. I did a blog post with a gentleman who had sleep apnea, and uh, he did fall asleep at the wheel and got into an, in an accident. Um, it wasn't a serious accident, but no pun intended, it really was a wake-up call to him. And um, he was sleepy a lot during the day, and he didn't realize that he had sleep apnea. So we're going to talk about that in a second, but I wanted to make sure we went down, is there a list of the more common causes of insomnia? Well, as I said, the, the emotional stresses of the day and uh, psychological factors are far and away the most common cause of insomnia. But often sleep do uh, doctors will see patients who are not aware that certain behavioral um, facets of their life will impact their ability to sleep as they get older. For example, uh, many people as they get older become much more sensitive to caffeine and if they routinely uh, like to have a cup of coffee at the end of their dinner at night, they may start to develop insomnia because uh, caffeine is keeping them awake if taken that late. There are also um, many cases of patients who have uh, frequent need to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. Uh, a lot of people think that's just part of getting older, uh, but you know, if someone's getting up four or five times a night, because it's harder to get back to sleep as you get older, that can lead to persistent insomnia as well. So when we evaluate patients who complain of difficulty staying asleep or getting a good night's sleep, it's certainly uh, uh, common to evaluate uh, the various physiologic and behavioral factors that might be contributing to that problem. I know the whole caffeine thing, it's weird. Sometimes I can drink a cup of coffee at two in the afternoon and I can't get to sleep. And sometimes I can have a cup at 
6 or 7 o'clock at night, and it doesn't affect me at all. It doesn't seem to be consistent. But. Well, it's, it's always a threshold issue, and uh, I generally tell all my patients over the age of 50 that you shouldn't have any caffeine after lunchtime. Uh, when you're 20 years old, you can have whatever you want, and you'll probably sleep through it. But uh, as we get older, a little bit of knee pain, a little bit of heartburn, a little bit of extra caffeine in the afternoon, these things accumulate and can lead to awakening at night. And once you're awake, uh, if you're over 50, it, it is uh, much harder to fall back asleep. Well, I'm only slightly over 50. So uh, what about being on your computer? Another bad habit I might have is to read things on my phone in bed. All that blue light is supposed to keep us awake. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, I have many patients who say that they try to fall asleep with the television on, and if they awaken in the middle of the night, they'll, they'll look at their uh, laptop or their computer. And that bright light and that, that visual stimulus and the auditory, if you're using it, is just going to stimulate your brain to stay awake. Uh, that's a, a bit different than reading a book uh, where there isn't the transmitted light, and people for centuries have read a book as a way of falling asleep at night. But it, it, it's generally a standard recommendation for people with sleep problems that they don't use any kind of electronics in bed at all. What about if you turn down the brightness? Uh, it's a matter of degree. Uh, you know, it just depends on how sensitive uh, you are to it. Um, you know, certainly you can read on a Kindle or uh, an iBook uh, in bed if it's not too bright. And some people might find that that doesn't bother them. Everyone's a little bit different. And so when we evaluate patients with sleep problems, it's really what has changed that might correlate with their sleep problems that would be important. If they've read their, uh, an iBook uh, every night for 10 years and only recently developed sleep problems and difficulty sleeping, it's probably not that related. Okay. Now, some medications can cause sleep problems. Is that right? Well, um, there are a lot of uh, sleep medications that are used to try to help people fall asleep. And what I tell people about that is that short-term uh, studies show that short-term use of sleeping pills can be very effective. If your dog just passed away or if you just lost your job or if there's a big family conflict, those kinds of things will disrupt sleep at night. And a brief period of using sleeping pills uh, can be helpful. A lot of uh, doctors who, uh, a lot of surgeons who perform surgery will give uh, sleeping pills to their patients as they recover for a couple weeks. But long-term sleeping pills often lose their effectiveness and can uh, cause grogginess and unsteadiness that can be a problem in the middle of the night, particularly in older people who need to use the bathroom because that's often when falls occur and sadly things like broken hips. As far as medications uh, being stimulative, some, some of the uh, newer um, antidepressants can, in some patients, cause a little bit of insomnia. And if patients' uh, new problems with sleep do seem to correspond with the beginning of a new medication like that, I'll often recommend that they talk to the prescribing doctor about possibly uh, using it in the morning rather than at night to see if that makes a difference. And what about food? There must be some foods that uh, interfere with your ability to get to sleep and stay asleep, and 
some foods, what do they say, like a glass of warm milk or something like that might help you to feel drowsy? Well, that's, that's an important issue. It's, it's uh, surprising how often I have patients who tell me they like to have a nighttime snack before they go to bed, or they'll get up in the middle of the night to, to eat, or they'll use the warm milk uh, story that we've all heard. In reality, any kind of eating or drinking uh, can interfere with our sleep, not only because it stimulates the body to be quite active, but uh, food in your stomach when you try to fall asleep can uh, much more is much more likely to produce heartburn, which uh, then will awaken you. So I tell all my patients that you shouldn't have anything to eat or drink within two hours of bedtime. And if you use the bathroom just before you get into bed, the likelihood that you need to use the bathroom in the middle of the night is much less. I've actually had patients who tell me that they will have a, uh, a cup of tea before they go to bed or, or a, a soft drink, and then they're surprised that two hours later they need to use the bathroom. So a lot of common sense things do need to be uh, reinforced when we see patients with these types of problems. I remember reading that um, alcohol can make you fall asleep, but it's likely to wake you up a couple of hours later. And that's absolutely true. You know, uh, anyone who's uh, had too much to drink will feel very sleepy and often uh, pass out if uh, their consumption was too high. And some people with insomnia at bedtime will discover that if they have a couple drinks, it helps them fall asleep. But absolutely, it's true that as the alcohol wears off over the next couple hours, it will actually uh, make sleep more fragmented and make you more likely to awaken. And that just compounds the problem. So we never recommend alcohol. Uh, for that type of purpose. So what do you recommend for people who are having trouble sleeping, staying asleep? Well, again, it, it depends on the individual patient, but uh, we have a set of guidelines which are generally referred to as sleep hygiene. Uh, these are common sense things, uh, many of which we've already discussed. I always recommend to my patients, uh, particularly as you get older, going to bed and getting up at the same time every day is really important in order to get the brain uh, on a normal cycle uh, so it can expect sleep in a normal amount of time. Secondly, I see many patients with insomnia who are in bed for far too many hours. They may be in bed 10 hours and I explain to them that the brain only needs a certain amount of sleep. For average adults, that's about seven hours a night. Some people up to eight, some people six and a half. But if you try to sleep for 10 hours a night, for most patients, that's gonna be too much and you won't be able to sleep that amount of time and you will have insomnia. So for those patients, we use what's known as sleep restriction therapy, where we recommend to them a progressive uh, restriction in the amount of time that they're in bed, using an alarm clock to make sure they get up in the morning. But in general, going to bed and getting up at the same time every day is very important, particularly as you get older. And then, as I said, avoiding food and drink of any type within two hours of bedtime is important. No caffeine after lunchtime is important. And trying to wind down uh, the emotional events of the day is uh, also something that some people have a hard time with, particularly in our modern era with electronics. They'll play video games right up until the time of bed. They'll watch the news and uh, get uh, emotionally involved in, in uh, difficult stories that might be presented on television. And that can impact people's ability to sleep. So we recommend more of a calm, sedate uh, uh, activity within the hour before going to bedtime. 
and hopefully uh, that will eliminate that as a potential cause of disruption as well. So something like meditation might be good? Meditation or a calm novel as opposed to a highly analytical book that uh, would stimulate uh, your uh, analytical side. Uh, You obviously don't want scary movies or or, uh, video games that uh, can make you agitated. So trying to wind down the day is very important. And one more thing I forgot to mention, particularly here in Maine, because we are so far north on the globe, in the summertime, we get to enjoy uh, many, many hours of daylight. And the way the human body was designed in the human brain, when we are exposed to sunlight in the morning, that helps to reset our, our clock and our rhythm to understand that it's time to get up. And that's great for resetting your circadian rhythm. In the late afternoon, and particularly the early evening, where there's still a lot of bright sunshine, if people uh, spend too much time out in that sunset, uh, sun rays at seven or eight o'clock at night, sometimes that can contribute to insomnia that evening as the brain sees that as a signal to remain awake. So for people who are struggling with insomnia, I say you want to get morning sunlight and you want to avoid evening sunlight. Uh, so that those uh, sunlight factors are working in your favor. Hmm, I hadn't thought about that. And I would assume that being physically active would help a person sleep better, but would you recommend any kind of physical activity, running the treadmill or something, before you go to bed? Actually, that's a, that's a common issue we have to deal with. Uh, many studies have suggested that uh, sleep at night is improved by physical activity during the day. And of course, common sense would say that as human beings, we should all have some degree of physical activity each day. But it's also well known that exercising too late in the evening, too close to bedtime, is not a good idea. It's it's a stimulation of the body, like uh, watching a scary movie. And for some people, it's hard to wind down after that. So we we never recommend... um, exercising vigorously, for example, after dinner, because that can lead to insomnia. And because I know somebody will want me to ask, what about sex? Is that a good thing to have before you go to sleep or not? Uh, There's no consistent data on that, um, so we don't usually recommend one way or the other. Okay. So we've been talking about insomnia. Is insomnia in itself considered a sleep disorder? Certainly, any, anything that disrupts the normal process of human sleep is considered a sleep disorder, and so uh, it is a, uh, a facet of, of sleep medicine. Uh, the field of sleep medicine is a what we call a multifaceted field. It involves doctors from many different subspecialties that all come together for a common purpose. When I go to this sleep academy meeting each year, which, by the way, is in two weeks in Boston this year, Uh, I am met by my fellow neurologists because sleep is a process of the brain, and when the brain doesn't get good sleep, there are brain problems that develop, and that's why neurology uh, created the field of sleep medicine back in the 1970s. But at the Sleep Academy meeting, we also have pulmonologists, lung doctors, because a, a common sleep disorder called sleep apnea is treated with respiratory devices, and so their expertise is helpful with that. And then for insomnia, because there is uh, such a high correlation between insomnia and psychological traumas, uh, we have many psychiatrists and psychologists 
who are part of the Sleep Academy as well. Well, let's talk about sleep apnea. We hear more and more about that these days. And um, can you describe what sleep apnea is? Sure. Sleep apnea is a condition that unfortunately is becoming more common because it is correlated with weight gain. And as our country uh, struggles with uh, obesity rates, uh, the frequency of sleep apnea is increasing. When we fall asleep at night, the muscles around the throat relax and that narrows the airway behind the tongue. If you continue breathing through a narrow tube, it vibrates and that's what we call snoring. Snoring doesn't commonly come from the nose. If that airway completely blocks off temporarily, that's called apnea. Your chest is going up and down trying to breathe, but there's no air moving. And so the brain senses that no air is moving and will force you to a lighter stage of sleep or actually force you awake in, it in order to get you to continue breathing. And for people with sleep apnea, this can happen hundreds of times at night. So typically we get the story that the patient snores very uh, loudly and, may, and the spouse may actually witness episodes where they do stop breathing for 20 or 30 seconds followed by a big snore. So these are the typical features of sleep apnea that we get uh, as a story. What the patient experiences is uh, night after night, seemingly sleeping for many, many hours, but still feeling exhausted during the day. Many patients with sleep apnea will try to sleep seven, eight, or nine hours a night and still have trouble staying awake during the day because they're not getting the good restorative sleep that I described earlier, the deep sleep, the dream sleep, because their, body, their brain is constantly keeping them in a lighter stage of sleep to get them to breathe. If somebody snores, does that automatically mean they have sleep apnea? Well, that's certainly a good question. Uh, a lot of people snore, and it's the first stage towards developing sleep apnea. Uh, we have a definition of sleep apnea that requires that when analyzed, patients uh, stop breathing on average five times every hour. If they stop breathing less than that, they're not called sleep apnea. And if they just snore and don't have episodes where they stop breathing, uh, they also don't have sleep apnea. But uh, usually people with sleep apnea uh, have rather loud snoring. And it's very common to hear that a spouse has to sleep in a different room because the snoring's so bad, or that someone's always snored their life, but the spouse says that over the last uh, few years, the snoring has gotten worse. And if that corresponds with uh, weight gain or, or changes in personality during the day, then probably sleep apnea is developing. Huh. Now, so every time the person stops breathing, even for a split second, that's cutting off the supply of oxygen to the brain. Is that correct? Well, a typical uh, episode where you stop breathing, it, it usually lasts somewhere between 15 and 30 seconds. And during that time, the oxygen in the blood will drop. And when you have a sleep test, that's part of what we analyze. We analyze uh, how much snoring is there? Do you stop breathing? How often do you stop breathing? And when these episodes uh, of apnea do occur, is there a significant drop in the oxygen level of the blood? Of course, from the body standpoint, this is a very stressful situation. And we now know from extensive research that untreated obstructive sleep apnea because of these periods of uh, lack of oxygen and the uh, responses the body has uh, can lead to significant long-term consequences.
like memory loss? Well, the, when the brain is deprived of good sleep, uh, it will have trouble with its memory. Fortunately, that's typically something that can be corrected if the sleep apnea can be corrected. But it's also known that untreated sleep apnea seems to correspond quite uh, frequently with uh, increased risk of heart attack and stroke and various other medical problems. So uh, we do uh, try vigorously to remind our colleagues in other fields of medicine that uh, patients need to be screened and need to be evaluated if there are uh, risk factors for sleep apnea because untreated, it can have so many other medical consequences. Mm. So what happens when somebody goes in and has a sleep study? What do you do? Well, uh, when we see people who we think have uh, sleep apnea, we would typically do what's known as an in-lab sleep study. And for that, you would come to our sleep center and spend the night uh, with typical monitoring. This involves uh, wires connected to the body and the brain. Uh, waves are monitored uh, through electrodes on the head. And through these electrodes, we're able to uh, assess the oxygen in the blood, the heart rate, the uh, periods of, of apnea that develop, and what stage of sleep the patient is in. So uh, we gather that information over a full night, and then over the next uh, few days, it's analyzed, and we have specific uh, measures that have to be met in order to qualify for the diagnosis of sleep apnea. And if a person does have sleep apnea, what's the best way to treat it? Well, fortunately, it is, in most cases, very easily treated. And when people with sleep apnea are treated, the vast majority do feel uh, much better. Their alertness increases, their energy level increases. And of course, long term, they're doing the best thing medically that they can for themselves, eliminating that as a potential consequence for uh, so many other conditions. The most common way of treating sleep apnea is with something called CPAP, which stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. It's a little mask that uh, patients will wear at night, which increases the pressure as they're breathing, uh, typically through the nose. Uh, people often aren't very enthusiastic about this option, and uh, fortunately, the more modern CPAP devices are much more comfortable but usually when patients benefit from CPAP, uh, they realize how important it is to them and they get used to it quite easily. There is another treatment of sleep apnea which involves a, uh, a mouth guard type device called a mandibular advancement retainer. And because that can be an appropriate treatment for very mild sleep apnea in selected cases, again, at the Academy of Sleep Medicine, we also have dentists because it's dentists and orthodontists that help us in devising these uh, uh, retainer devices that are customized for patients. So not every patient with sleep apnea needs CPAP, but probably about 90% do. And if they don't like lose weight, for instance, um, might they have to stay on the CPAP machine forever? Well, I always tell patients that they typically have sleep apnea for a combination of two reasons. One is the facial structure they inherited from their mother and father. There's certain types of facial structures that make you more likely to have sleep apnea. These are people usually with a smaller jaw or a rounder face. So I, whenever I see someone with a questionable history of sleep apnea, I always ask if there's anybody else in the family with very bad and loud snoring or anyone else with a diagnosis of sleep apnea 
And very commonly, you'll find that there are other family members. The second factor, as you alluded to, is weight gain. There are many people who may have inherited a tendency towards sleep apnea, but it's only after a precipitous weight gain that they actually develop the sleep apnea. Now, I have had many patients who have been very overweight and uh, have sleep apnea, but when they lose the weight uh, and we reanalyze them, we find that their sleep apnea has gone away with pure weight loss. And those are, of course, very gratifying cases. Mm. Uh, we always hope that we have someone like that, but uh, often it's the combination. And so people can make their sleep apnea better with uh, sleep uh, with weight loss, but uh, not everybody can cure sleep apnea with weight loss. All right. Let's touch upon a couple of other sleep disorders. Narcolepsy. Is that fairly rare? Well, traditionally, it's thought to be fairly rare, but uh, I must say that uh, it's more common than I would have suspected over the last 20 years. And talking to my colleagues uh, in sleep medicine, we are seeing more and more people with this condition. Narcolepsy is a condition where the brain struggles to regulate the difference between being awake and being asleep. And we think of narcoleptic patients as the ones who are falling asleep in the middle of a conversation, and they can do that but they also struggle with insomnia because when they want to sleep, their brain thinks it's time to be awake. Hmm. So sleep, uh, sleep apnea patients are often presenting uh, in the age groups of uh, 40, 50, and 60. Narcoleptic patients usually start developing symptoms even as a teenager or in their 20s. And so it's always uh, something that we keep in mind at that point. Uh, far and away, the most common symptom is daytime tiredness and, uh, but there are other features that can be uh, present as well, and certainly we, we question patients about those when we see them. I always think of somebody who's awake one second and sound asleep the next. It's not often that dramatic, but certainly uh, we get the story that uh, patients, uh, you know, will have periods during their day where they have overwhelming sleepiness. And, you know, they, they reassure us that they are getting good sleep at night, and uh, so they don't understand why they would be so uh, predisposed to falling asleep at their desk. Uh, the more dramatic cases can fall asleep in the middle of a conversation or fall asleep at the dinner table when most people wouldn't. And that can be treated? Absolutely. Uh, to make uh, our jobs even harder, uh, it's also well known that people with narcolepsy for various interesting reasons have a higher incidence of also having sleep apnea. So we have to make sure they don't have both conditions at the same time. But uh, if they don't have sleep apnea uh, as well, then we have very good medications that can be effective in uh, treating narcolepsy. I've had many patients who presented primarily with sleep apnea, and when we treated their sleep apnea and verified that they were doing well with their uh, CPAP treatment, they were still overwhelmingly exhausted during the day. And once and we reanalyzed them, after treating their sleep apnea and found that they also had narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. So I have some patients who have both conditions and are treated for both. How about restless leg syndrome? That's a, uh, a very common condition that we also see. Uh, sometimes it's misdiagnosed. Classic restless leg syndrome is an uneasy feeling in the legs. It's not typically described as pain. Uh, if I, if uh, any of your listeners have um, gone on very long walks or have uh, 
a uh, tendency to go jogging. Uh, they know that worn out feeling in the legs that requires stretching and a feeling of unease. Uh, and that's the type of thing that we often hear described by people with restless legs. The classic feature is that at night while watching TV or even after getting into bed and trying to fall asleep, they have to get up and walk around. They find that walking actually helps to relieve this uneasy feeling. And that's pretty classic for restless leg syndrome. There are good medicines for the treatment of uh, restless legs. Uh, it's well known that uh, things like low iron levels uh, can cause symptoms of restless legs. And we always check for that, particularly in young women who may have heavy menstrual periods or older people who might have a slow chronic blood loss from an ulcer or something causing low blood counts and low iron because we can correct that quite easily. But if they don't have uh, one of those types of correctable problems, there are medications that can be quite helpful. Well, that's good to know. And finally, uh, sleepwalking, and I think I'll add sleep talking. Are those sleep disorders? Absolutely, they're in a group which we call parasomnias. Uh, sleepwalking and sleep talking are far more common in children than they are in adults. Uh, typically, we get the story that the sleepwalking started when they were six or eight years old. And the vast majority of people with sleepwalking and sleep talking will outgrow it uh, as they get older. For some unfortunate patients, though, it can persist into adulthood and uh, can be a persistent problem. It's well known that people with sleepwalking or sleep talking can later in life uh, have those types of episodes triggered again by certain medications, so we review their medicines as well. But uh, fortunately, it's, it's not a uh, persistent problem for, for most adults. Hmm. Bottom line, when should you go see a doctor for any of these issues? Well, I think if, if someone thinks that they're in bed getting enough sleep, uh, and yet during their day they struggle to stay awake, they find they always need a nap after uh, work before uh, dinner time, or they just can't enjoy a movie uh, on television or in a movie theater without falling asleep, then there is probably something wrong and uh, needs to be evaluated. And because some of these uh, sleep disorders do have long-term medical consequences as well, uh, that's another reason to have things evaluated. It's always gratifying to find correctable problems, and for a lot of sleep disorders, uh, there's a lot we can do to help people. That's good news. So how much sleep do we need? Well, as a teenager, at least eight hours is, is quite uh, common. But as we get older, we need a little bit less. An average adult, it's about seven hours. And actually, when we get into the 70s and 80s, uh, six to seven hours is more common. And at that, those uh, upper ages, uh, it's quite common that the body will need a nap in the middle of the day. Uh, because of the uh, difficulty consolidating sleep only at night. Of course, that is very frustrating for older patients because they want to continue uh, a full seven or eight hours uh, at night, and we struggle with that uh, consequence of aging. But I think if someone's in bed and getting seven to eight hours, and they always have, and it's usually been a uh, restorative for them, and now for some reason uh, it isn't, that's a good signal that they need to uh, see a sleep doctor. Napping. I hadn't thought about napping. Thank you for the excuse to take a nap in the middle of the day. Um, is there such a thing as a power nap? Can we take a nap for 10 minutes, maybe go out and lay in the hammock or put your head down on the desk? Does that really work? 
Uh, napping does uh, present uh, some interesting features. Uh, we know as we get older that uh, napping in the afternoon will often make insomnia at night uh, worse because you're depriving the brain of that need to sleep uh, at night that helps us fall asleep. If people find that they need a nap in the middle of the day, it's usually a symptom that they're not getting good sleep at night. So it's compensating for a problem that has yet to be identified. And so when I see any patient who is, presents to me with a sleep disorder, uh, I always ask whether they're taking naps during the day because it may be causing part of their problem or it may be a further signal that there is a problem. So did you just take away permission to take a 10-minute power nap? Well, I think uh, you, you take a nap uh, uh, at your own risk. If, you, if it doesn't interfere with your uh, sleeping at night, then I think uh, a lot of people would enjoy a brief nap like that. And certainly uh, there are many cultures uh, on our planet uh, where a nap after lunch is a typical uh, cultural behavior and doesn't seem to cause problems. It's just a matter of whether it's disruptive or not. Okay. Well, I'm going to look at it as soothing. Is there anything I should have asked you about sleep disorders that I didn't, or any final words of advice or wisdom? Well, I, I think we covered most of the broad uh, categories of sleep medicine. I think the, the major uh, stress point for all the uh, listeners is that sleep is not the absence of consciousness, it's an active process. And if that active process gets disrupted, it's going to have an impact on your health and your well-being and your ability to enjoy your life. And very often we can find things that are correctable uh, that make things substantially better. And people who are uh, developing problems with their sleep should talk to their doctor about it. One last thing. I'm curious, why did you decide to specialize in sleep medicine? Well, I began in uh, the field of neurology, which is in, uh, concentrates on the function of the brain. And as I studied uh, uh, neurology and understood the diseases of the brain, uh, more and more I was finding that uh, lack of sleep or lack of good sleep made all of those diseases of the brain worse. And so I realized that if I was going to be an effective neurologist, I needed to understand sleep medicine and make sure that sleep problems were not contributing to the uh, neurologic diseases that my patients had that they were seeing me for. Well, thank you. And thank you for spending this time with us. It was a pleasure. I've been talking about sleep disorders with Dr. Christopher Hughes. He's the medical director of the Center for Sleep Disorders at Southern Maine Healthcare. I'm Diane Atwood, and you've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future podcast, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. For more health reporting that makes a difference, be sure to check out catchinghealth.com.